everyone. Welcome back to another new episode of James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James. And wow, what a week it's been. Uh, from the last time that I talked to you last Sunday night, when the shooting of Kenosha resident Jacob Blake had just taken place, to now one week later, and this country is once again in the middle of chaos, and it's centered around race. So much has happened in the last week. We've seen major sports shut down and protest. We've seen the response from the major sports, not only the athletes, but now owners, especially in the NBA, taking legitimate concrete action in social and political issues. Many NBA arenas will be the site of polling places this November to get as many people out to vote as possible since voter suppression has become such such a major issue in this country. And at the end of the week on Friday night we find out the news of actor Chadwick Boseman probably most famously known for playing the superhero Black Panther, passing away at age 43 from colon cancer. And I want to talk a lot more about that later on in the show uh, when I talk about the songs of the week and the Baldwin quote of the week. But I want to first get to the second half of my interview that I had with Dr. Ed Pavlik. He We'll spend some more time today talking about not only the awareness of Baldwin, but how he personally goes about teaching Baldwin, as well as the importance of music, not only for Baldwin and his creativity, but other artists as well. And we'll finish up talking today, um, talking about how to make the best use of Baldwin and his works in trying to make society a better place, for lack of a better phrase. So the second part of this interview, I started with asking Dr. Pavlik, what exactly do students know about James Baldwin when they come into his classroom? And we'll get to his answer right after this. You know, like 20 years ago, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be um, out of the ordinary at all for me to walk into a class of 25, 30 students with a James Baldwin book, you know, and say something like, you know, <clears throat> let's read this next week. Who's ever heard of James Baldwin? No one would know his name. Um, th that's less the case now. You know, obviously with movies and documentaries and releases and things like that and with very high profile books about James Baldwin out including Eddie Gloud's great book that's out right now uh, which I'm which I'm thrilled to see kind of sailing high in the New York Times bestsellers list because again you know th th that's one of those ways that Baldwin's work can do do what it does it do what it has to do in the world so that that's great stuff so so yeah so so more students are aware of him now than than before I think you know un like in the sixties college students would have known him because he was on TV and he was in, in the most high profile media all the time. 
Uh, and then things went kind of more underground for a while. And now we're back up to the, that we're not up to that level because media is so different now. Um, and students' lives with media access are so, so complex. Um, but yeah, most, a lot of students have heard of him. How, how do you teach him? Like, how do you, do you just let his work speak for himself? Or do you throw a lot of your own personal experience with him in there? Or how do you, when you're teaching specifically about Baldwin, what is the way that you use the students to get from point A of having very little knowledge to get immersed in his world? Because now with, when I took Craig Werner's Baldwin class, it was, you know, we started out with some of the essays and then we read Richard Wright first. We read Native Son oh. as, you know, kind of, you know, a background. And then, you know, we really dove into Baldwin and his critique of Richard Wright sure. and then kind of built it from there. Sure. Yeah, well, you know, there, there are a hundred ways to go about it, man. Um, and I, I've, I've taught, I don't know, a half dozen or so courses that are kind of focused on James Baldwin as a whole course. I'm doing a grad seminar uh, this, this term, so starting next week, we're going into it again. And I probably have done it in very different ways, you know, various kinds of different ways. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, for me, I think of like, what, what are the best ways to just introduce him? How do you give people the first taste of what this is really about, like at its core? I remember one year I played for the class his audio interview with Studs Terkel that he did from 1961. I did that thing in, in, in the summer of 1961 in Chicago. It's about an hour of Studs Terkel talking to James Baldwin, um, you know, pretty early in his career before Fire Next Time. Mm-hmm. He's still up and coming in a way. But then Studs Terkel is so incredible as a person, as an interviewer, as, a, as an activist himself, that the, the connection was really, really, you know that interview. It's one of the greats. Yep, so it's just that from, from early, you know. And then the same class, we listened to the, um, we watched the video of the speech he gave in 1979 in Berkeley. And Angela Davis introduces him in that venue. You've probably seen that too. Uh, and, you know, it's still the same guy, but he's a very, very different style of presentation, very different kind of style of language. Some of the ideas are are still the same, but most of them have been twisted into different shapes, at least, if not kind of wholly new in the way they spin. And so try to give students a little bit, well, first of all, I do think that Baldwin's voice in speech is a good place to start. I really do think that. Um, that wasn't the case for me, uh, but maybe I wish it was, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but So there's that, I can say that much. And giving, a, giving the students sense one of the man's voice. Second, probably a taste of just how he is in space, his body, how he moves, you know, just a sense of his presence in video and audio. And then a sense that this is a changing person over time. These are still the same guys, yeah, but they're very different, you know. And so we don't expect this thing to be consistent, stable, the same all the way through. We're going to watch changes and ways things fluctuate. 
Um, um, yeah, and then I think the second thing about introductions, and I'll probably do this again, I can feel myself already, you know, leaning toward doing this again next week, is to start out with the, the essay, The Uses of the Blues, which is one of those uncollected essays, which now is available through that book, The Cross of Redemption, which is such a great recovery, you know. Um, of course, I had gone through the, I had gone through the archives and actually the Ebays and purchased most of those essays in the original magazines and stuff, so... I've I've had it, but it's great to have students have ready access to it. But the use of the blues is a probably would be the the single the single best place upon my recommendation for people to start if they want to get what like what Baldwin is about, kind of all the way through from beginning to end, you know. And um, I guess what I could say just briefly about that is in the use of the blues, I think Baldwin speaks very clearly about the strange kind of maybe counterintuitive reality that if you can, that if you seek happiness by trying to elude and evade and avoid your troubles, pain and trouble and confusion and risk, if you seek happiness that way, it's the road to bankruptcy. It's the road to emptiness. It's kind of the road to hell or maybe Disneyland, which is probably the same place. (laughs) On On the other hand, if you're able to turn around and, and face some of the things that trouble you, that you're afraid of, that are dogging you, that confuse you, if you're able to face some of that stuff and try to speak about it, try to talk to you, at least yourself about it, try to just get it to get it to exist in language, bring it out of silence and out of darkness, out of the shadows, and make it speech. You'll find that if you're able to do that at all, if you're able to tell your, even yourself the truth about these parts of yourself which are troubling, you'll find there, instead of just endless pain and depression and, and fatigue, you'll find there great sources of energy, of buoyancy, of, uh, of vibrancy, of vitality, maybe not happiness, but but what Baldwin kind of kind of what Baldwin called joy, and so I mean I really that's really it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else kind of comes and goes from that. For me, core, you know, core discovery that he made, and I think the uses of the blues as a title for the essay and a lot of the content of the essay is musical. He's saying, you know, what we find is this happening in music, the, bu- the blues as a musical form, hip-hop as a musical form, all of the black musical forms have the idea that we got to turn around and talk about the stuff that, that's trouble for us and the great sense of energy that comes from that. Mm-hmm. The whole world knows that's true about black music. Um, and, you know, so I think it makes sense that Baldwin s- starts there. And I think probably in his in his imagined sense of himself, a lot of those cues for making that kind of counterintuitive insight came from music before anything else. I'm glad you brought up black music because that was exactly where I wanted to go next. Um, You know, so many times people would say Baldwin both spoke and wrote very lyrically. He had a certain cadence to his written word and his, you know, voice. And, as a poet, people have said the same thing about you. Uh, can, can you speak to the importance of black music 
to Baldwin and yourself, both personally and professionally, how you use it either as ideas or as a way to kind of center yourself because very famously you know when he was trying to finish Grotella on the mountain he was playing I believe what was it um Fats Waller and uh Bessie Smith Smith records to help him get that language right um yeah he didn't have iTunes at the time you know no not at all like three three 378s two sides each probably yeah right so uh, what is it about specifically black music so it's rooted in the church and the blues and jazz music and you know playing that forward to r&b and hip-hop and rap that allows artists like yourself and baldwin to really go to a special place to create your own art yeah yeah oh man that's a lot uh well first for me, like, if we say the language is lyrical, you know, Bob was a lyrical writer. It has a cadence to it. It has, Baldwin himself said it has a beat, you know. What do we mean? Uh, you know, and as a poet, like, if I'm working as a poet, like, in, po- in, the, in the tradition of poetry, there's clear cues for what we mean by that. There's, there's prosody, you know, there's ambic pentameter, and there's all kinds of formal devices structural devices that poets have learned to manipulate in language to make it lyrical to give their their language a certain lyric rhythmic tonal signature open vowels short vowels long syllables stressed stressed um beats and words versus non-stressed all that stuff that's all interesting to me i i know almost nothing about any of that but but it is interesting and i'm aware it's there uh, but for me, what, what lyrical means, what lyrical language means is first and foremost, the most important thing about it is that when you get done with a lyrical passage of language, the first impulse is to do it again. So if I got, if I get done reading with a, if I get done reading a certain sentence and I think I just got to read that again or a certain page, I'm going to read that again. Even a story, a whole story, you know, like. No, I don't want to go on. I want to do that again. That's the lyrical. And I always tell people, this is, everyone knows this very obvious with music. You know, I tell people, no one has a favorite song they want to hear once. You know, you have a favorite song, you like a song, you want to hear that thing again and again and again and again. And And that is the lyric. That's what it means. It basically means repetition. It means you want to, you want to experience it again. You want to hear it again. You want to read it again. And, and, and I say experience because the other thing about the lyric, which is important, is one, it draws you back. And two, it's not exactly because you're interested in what it meant. You're just, you want to experience it again. And so the lyric is a, a, re, a repetitive experience of language. You just want to read it again to get it in your mouth, to get it to come through you again. You know, uh, I just want to hear, you know, Sade or, or whoever, Mary J. Bly, SZA, whoever. I want to hear him just work through that verse again. Um, because there's something described there I recognize, something described there that hits me. But you match the thing that she's describing that hits me with a way of bringing it through music that 
makes it just lift off whatever the words would be if I typed them on the page. You know, that's what it's all about. And so I, I've said, you know, like in my book, I, I say like Baldwin's one of those writers that we listen to and we want to hear him again. And that's what I mean. You just want to, you know, those paragraphs in Baldwin, everyone has them. Everybody who's ever read Baldwin ends up with, with a range of paragraphs that are sentences and things that you just, you know, you, you just want to go back to them. Right. That is the lyrical. Okay. Right. So I can say that much. Um, then about the, like the role of black music. Also, what's interesting about the use of the blues the essay is early, the like, first couple sentences in that essay, Baldwin says, when I say the use of the blues, I'm not talking about music. He said, I don't know anything about music, he says. Lying, of course. He said, I don't know anything about music. Uh, I'm talking about a sense of the world. I'm talking about a sense of experience. And that's, that's what's most important about black music is not that it's music it's that it's a it's a it's an index for experience that exists no other place we can we can in black musical performances of all kinds we encounter again pieces of our lives pieces of ourselves that and pieces of each other crucially that we just can't ever experience in any other way. Um, and, and of course, it can't be any real surprise that that, that, that dy dynamic between black music and experience is most intense with black people. Because, you know, let's face it, um, that, that, that connection is, is very, is, I mean, it's not the same for everybody. But the chances of a person, a black person in black musical performance, having experience that was directly in line and in conversation uh, with the performance itself, very high. Um, the chances for you know non-black audiences to to appreciate the musical stuff, but have a little bit of a question mark as to what this really means in the world and where this really come from. That that that. I don't, there's not a complete divide because you wouldn't want to hear it if there was, but the mix between musical performance and experience across racial lines because of apartheid, because of the ways race has been used to cut up and divide our, our world for non-black people who don't have black families and black weddings and funerals and everything, churches and everything else, just as a matter of course to go to and to deal with when they're all through life, especially when, you know, when your kids, um, that presents, you know, a, a, another level, another kind of ring in the circus uh, that people have to negotiate. And that, 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 that causes some trouble. Um, that's a challenge. Um, but so for me, for me personally, and as a, as a, as a writer, as an artist, as a, as a person, it's just simply the, 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 the autobiographical fact that as far as I can ever remember it, as a little kid searching for some echo of what I felt in my body, it was when the radio was on and, you know, Aretha Franklin came on or Otis Redding came on or, or most, most memorable, memorable for me, Michael Jackson and his family came on. And I just felt like, you know, I'm five, I'm six. How, how, how old am I? I, um, I felt like, you know, the singer, say Michael, 
I felt like he was just putting his hand on my shoulder. I could feel that. Um, and often, you know, because of my own family and, and places my family lived, often I felt like in ways that was the only place I could find the kind of echo of things I was already feeling in, in some ways. And that's kept on the whole way. And so, so um, for me, I, I, you know, I say like the music is a kind of window through which I look back into the world. Um, and in that world, I see my own life. I see the lives of people around me. I see, you know, anything I've ever, I've ever encountered um, clarified and deepened and brought to life in ways through musical representation um, in ways that, that carry me from where I am now to where I was previously. You know, um, and, 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 and often it feels like it's kind of the only connection there is, other than like my own memories. But we all know how untrustworthy that is, you know. Right. Or, 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 or very importantly, the memories of other people, you know. Um, but I think in ways, because my life has been so mobile, I don't often have around me people who, I don't have anybody around me who knew me when I was 15. Uh, you know what I mean? 16, 17, even 20s in college, you know, they, they aren't around. I can email them maybe, but but in a certain song, you know, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life or uh, the Request Line or, you know, uh, Nucleus Jam On It, you know, some, some song from the 80s, I can feel us all back together again. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of return not only to my body, but to the to the presence of the people who are around me then, who of course are a part of me now. And um, without it, man, I, I just, I can't even really imagine why I wake up. Right. And I also say that, um, you know, in another way, um, in my own family, with my own kids, Stacy, you know, my wife, we lived our lives. My, my oldest, our oldest kid in Milan, who you know is 22. His sister is about to turn 20 in, in a couple of weeks. And the little one is 11. And we lived our whole lives together in the house with music playing all the time, too. You know, and, and black music predominantly, of course, you know, and all that. So, so in the music, too, is a record of my family life, uh, much of which I missed, you know, because I'm so distracted and like, like, like adults are. I can get back to it there. But also now, um, with my with my with my grown kids' musical taste, which thank God is 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 great. My kids have great musical taste. I love the music they love. It gives me, you know, a way to kind of keep connected with them and, and the worlds they're in too, which is um, which is which I didn't really see coming exactly, but which I'm so thankful for every day. And, and, you know, we're, my older kids and I probably exchange a song or two on from Spotify or whatever. We were sending songs back and forth to each other multiple times a week, if not per day. Um, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a world which talks about the generation gap and the, the, the adults don't like the kids music and all that, turn that down upstairs and all that stuff. I just feel like I never, I'd never had that. Um, and 
you know, our, my own family, this family we have is crazy like all families always are, but we do have a, a certain cohesion among us that my family growing up with my parents and my sisters, I, I, I don't think we ever had. And I, and black music and its life and what it does in these ways that I'm talking about, I don't think is unrelated to that. It's not the whole story, but it's part of the mix for sure. Um, you know, uh, and that's, I mean, you know, what's the, what's that thing from the, from the commercial, you know, you can't put a price tag on that or whatever. Right. That's the, that's the real stuff. No. And in the coming weeks on the podcast, going deeper into black music and how, how it started in this country and where it's gone and the impact that it's had. It's, that's really something that I'm going to spend a lot of time with and really explore because I think it is so important because like you said, you exchange songs with your kids. And I know like anytime I talk with Craig or if I talk to any of my former students, really the first thing is that we ask is, what are you listening to? Yeah. You listening to something new or are you, you know, transported back listening to something old and, and why are you listening to it? And that the power that music has, I think is so undervalued in our society as something that can bring us together. And with the classes I've taken and the classes I've taught, and I know the classes you teach, you use not only music, but all forms of art as a way to bring people together. And I think just as a society, it's something that we take for granted. And I really feel with this younger generation, it's something that they're really embracing. And they're, they're using it as a way to express themselves and their identity and their place in this world that hasn't probably been seen for a couple generations. Yeah. Last thing I have for you before you get out of here, and I really appreciate you taking the time today and oh, spending man, so pure, much pure time with me. For me. Jesse, pure pleasure for me. Very famously, Baldwin was asked when Blues from Mr. Charlie was premiering that if he would be able to write anything non-political. <laughs> and he kind of scoffed at the idea because of, Obviously, especially for him, all writing was political. Right. How do you think a non-academic can use Baldwin in a transformative way other than just enjoying the work itself? Because I don't, people that I've encountered that have read Baldwin, it's more than just, oh, I read this book and it was a good book. It's, I read this and it touched me or it made me see something in a different light. And I think that's part of his power and it's part of the reason that you know almost 35 years after his death he's still so relevant today so yeah for for a college student or somebody coming up that you know is recommended to you know read fire next time or read cross of redemption like how can they use that work in their own lives yeah. in a positive way Right. Um, well, I, I want to say this. I want to say Baldwin's, James Baldwin's work is not relevant. It is permanent. It's permanent. All the great art is permanent. Shakespeare, 
Dante, Coltrane, whoever. Um, some kind of I'm, I'm interested. Bec- I'm interested because Baldwin, at the end of his life, in, in interviews and even in the writing, private and public writing, he was interested in time. And I, I really think that 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 art is capable of. And I think he was very aware of this somewhere, without not understanding, but he was aware of it. It was alive in him in his body somehow. That that art can get past a certain threshold to where it enters certain other dimensions in time. And I think part of what makes art great isn't its money and how many Oscars or whatever. I don't know. It's not how many curriculum in an English building are dedicated to it and whatever. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, when a, when a work of art can live beyond its century when when people who weren't born when the artist who made the work was living and aren't living on the same continent that the artist who made the work was born or was living sometimes that's the same sometimes that's a different continent when that kind of communication happens i think the the work has made it over into a threshold that that's doing something different with time you know and so and so, and, and for me, Baldwin's work is very high on the list of American writers who have achieved that kind of thing. I think he's absolutely at the very top of American writers who've achieved that thing. It's not exactly timeless, you know, because it changes. It makes it start, it's still historical. It makes a difference when you're reading Baldwin and where. But somehow, um, its life is unpoliceable. <laughs> the traffic between James Baldwin's work and the people it finds is unpoliceable. Can't be predicted. Because prediction is just a part of policing in a way, you know. <laughs> and so so my my um and I'm very conscious of this because for for many reasons, among which is because I, I never really read James, I didn't meet James Baldwin in a classroom. In many ways, in, in many ways, like Baldwin worked with his family, I worked with him. I kept him outside of school for the most part, even with Craig. It took me years to get that together with Craig and his classes, which was so important to me. And James Baldwin, I, you know, I, I was, I had a long bridge to get over of distrust and, and uh, between me and what happened in classrooms, man. So because of all that and for other reasons, I, I think a lot about just exactly that question. And this is what I think. Um, uh, what I tell people, what I, what I have students do is keep journals. You got to have the book, whatever book we got, Baldwin, whoever else, and you, you got a reading journal, a notebook of some kind. And I, I like to have it, an actual notebook, not a computer file. You carry it. And I also, of course, recommend people get the real books, you know, I know, just get the real paper and, and unplug it and no one can poke you, you know, from inside the thing. So get with the paper and the print and have your own paper and, and, and just whatever, whatever passages in the work strike you, just write them out in your own, in your own handwriting, quote it in your own writing and almost like you're writing it, 
you know, because you are, in fact, writing it, not typing it. You're writing it. And then reflect. Just any, any feeling you have for why. <clears throat> what was the power of that? What, what led you? If I have to, you know, if I'm reading Sonny's Blues and the assignment is take five quotes, write out five quotes in your journal. Why these five? Why this one? Why number two? Why number three? Why number four? What, what, did, what, did, I, what did I see there? And that um, keeps things, and they don't show me that. Then a couple times a term, I'll, have, I'll say, okay, take, you know, 10 quotes out of your, out of your you know, six weeks into it, you'll have 50 quotes in there. Take eight of them. Type them up and, and, and work through and type up that reflection you did, the reasoning, you know, underneath. Type that up and just give it to me in a little in a in a six page thing or something, and I read them through and I t- and I write them back, you know. But that keeps like that keeps part of it private and unscripted. It, if it connects to something we were talking about in class, great. If not, fine. If it's your if it's your grandmother or something that happened to you on Tuesday, someone you knew said that same thing. That's what it's all about. Because and part of the permanence of great art, part of the permanence of Baldwin <clears throat> works this way. My experience reading Baldwin again and again and again, rereading, re- I've read some of this stuff 10 times, man. Maybe more. More. I mean, those early essays like Color and Tough Teachers, I've probably read them 200 times. But still, even now, I'll be reading something and I'll, 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 be, I'll catch myself basically daydreaming while I'm reading. You know, I'm thinking about something else. But it'll be some memory I have of something that happened in a way I've never remembered it before. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm reading this thing about James Baldwin in Harlem in 1938 or whatever it is. And all of a sudden I'll get some memory of me and, you know, some kid walking down some street when I was 12 or some song I heard, whatever here, or something someone told me happened to them when I was 22. And, you know, write that down. That's what I would tell people. Right, all, that stuff down. That stuff that occurs to you and seems like out of out of nowhere to you while you're reading. Write that stuff down. Almost like you keep a dream journal of dreams. Keep a reading journal of, of reading, but not just your thoughts on the work. Anything that comes through your mind, not anything, because you know it could be groceries you're thinking about. You don't necessarily want to write that down. But 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 there are those things that that occur. What because reading itself is a kind of activity in your mind which which you know kind of churns stuff up it gets stuff moving and then reading things that are you know are truly great in their in their nature does that in a whole nother dimension for us and so i would tell non-academic people non-student people or or people who are academics and students and want to rehabilitate you know (laughs) (laughs) that that's what i would do um because i think uh I say, uh, you know, reading is just dreaming about writing. Reading is dreaming about writing. And when you dream, we know that when we dream, most times our brain has this thing it clicks in so we don't physically act out the actions of our dreams. Once in a while, you, it fails and you, like, you know, wake yourself up trying to do a layup in a dream or something. But mostly our, we dream it, but something in our brain prevents us from doing it while we're dreaming it. And reading is like that for me. I think it, for all of us, I think reading is, is the act of writing. Just we're not 
We're not physically doing it. Mm -hmm. But all but moving the hand across the page, those same activities are going on. And, And I think anybody who's reading a book, you know, there is something that, especially people who are reading books because, you know, especially non-students, people, anybody who's reading a book that hasn't been assigned to them with a gun, you know, if you're doing this by choice, you also want to write a book. All readers are writers. And not everyone's going to write a book. And not everyone should because writing a book is a job and that's not everybody's job. But, but, but in order to read, you are really writing. And to take that to the next step, because most people say, well, I'm not really going to write a book, so I'm not even going to start. I'm not even going to, you know, it's like, whatever. Or I write two pages, and then it's been a year, and I haven't done anything, so whatever, I'm going to, you know. But this is a way to when you're reading, if you can just start. Yeah, man, those things that come through your mind that seem unique and novel, just write them down on a page. Keep a notebook. Just keep it right there with your book. Carry it around with you. Keep it on the nightstand, on the, on the table. And just do it. And don't put any pressure on it. It doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be a story. It doesn't have to be anything. Just just do that. Just note that activity in your brain. I think people, that will enable people to travel, to move, and to grow, and to notice things about themselves, the world, and what they're reading. And James Baldwin or anybody else. But, you know, Baldwin is is what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, that, will, that will enable a kind of, what I call a kind of travel with the work. That um, isn't possible otherwise, and there's absolutely, in my mind, there's absolutely no training what whatever required for that. You know, and if it's interesting to you, some nights say, you know, I'm not going to read the book. I'm just going to reread the stuff I have in this journal. You know, and if some of that stuff when you read it is still interesting after two weeks or a month or six months, you say, wow, that was because you won't remember it anymore. Wow, I had that thought. If that stuff is still interesting, you know, that is writing. So, you know, that's what I would recommend. That's what I do. That's, you know, that's kind of, in a way, that's all my classes are now. We have books. You're keeping your reading journal. You're going to give, you're going to give some excerpts of that to me a couple times during the term. And then we're going to get together three times a week or twice a week. And now we're going to do it on Zoom. And we're going to talk about this stuff. Sometimes I might say, anybody want to share a, a quote from the journal or not? But that's, um, you know, that, that's, that's what it is. That's what teaching is, and that's what reading is, and that's what living is. I think that's a great place to stop. That says a lot. And, you know, there's no, no better person to, to – there are a lot of great people to do that with in their work, but nobody's better than Baldwin with it. There are a lot of others, but, but Baldwin's – Baldwin's good. Yes, he and, is. And, and necessary and permanent, like I said. Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, last thing. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or share what you're working on or anything that you've recently released? Um, well, I've got this. That's my newest book. Let it be broke. Let yep. it be broke. These are poems. Um. I don't know. You can see probably that there's a guy, a black man there with a, with his face covered, a mask and behind him are some pretty much white looking riot police. And then if you can see kind of diagonal here, it's actually male, female, 
and then check your race. It's a form I got when I applied to a job and they wanted me to, you know, fill out the census data or whatever, you know? And, um, so, you know, there you go and let it be broke. These are poems that kind of are grappling with that situation. You got two choices. You got three choices. You can, you can be protesting or you can be the riot police. And when push comes to shove, you're going to have to define yourself according to these boxes. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to do that, I mean, you know, it's worth your while to read a book like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that, that's, that came out in March. And um, my novel, Another Kind of Madness, which I don't have a copy of, that's this book. That came out last year, but the paperback came out this spring. So that's available in paperback. And yeah, that's a journey for you if you're interested. Um, you know, my the, the recent work, I just finished a book that'll be out in the spring about the, that is a, working through the full career of the poet Adrienne Rich, who is famous for being a, an important feminist poet, especially in the 60s and especially in the 1970s and probably 80s. But a, um, and, and rightly important for that reason, and also important in some other dimensions of her life and work, over 60 years of her career as a poet. So that book is called Outward. Um, Audrey and Rich's Expanding Solitudes that would be out in the spring. I'm happy to have that on the way. Um, you know, me, I'm always working on multiple things, so <laughs> got a few other things going on. I'm right. on basically, I'm working on a book-length version of that essay you, you talked about before, We Called That Touch. I'm working on a book-length version of that essay. Uh, I'm calling it Like I Was Ink. Um, which is, you may know, a, a quote out of a song by Rakim, Eric B. and Rakim. Mm-hmm. I start to think and then I sink into the paper like I was ink. So that's that's the next book, Like I Was Ink. Great. All right. He is a distinguished research professor of English, African-American studies, and creative writing at the University of Georgia. Ed Pavlik, I appreciate you so much. Thank yeah, you so Likewise, much for joining me today. Absolutely. Keep Keep doing it, man. All right, take care. All right, peace. My thanks again to Ed Pavlik for spending so much time talking about Baldwin and the not only the importance of Baldwin for all of us, but the importance that Baldwin carried for him in his own life. I will put a link in the show notes to Ed's work and where you can order one of his many books. I want to spend a couple minutes before we wrap up the show talking about Chadwick Boseman. As I said earlier, he died on Friday night from colon cancer at 43. And it's just, it's one more thing to happen to all of us in what has become an absolute awful year of 2020. And the the thing about the death of Chadwick Boseman is for so many, not only men and women, but boys and girls of color, their experience with him as a Black Panther was and will continue to be a life-changing experience for them. 
because representation is so important. And for a young black boy or black girl to be able to go to the theater and see someone that looks like them as a hero and as somebody to aspire to be, it's important. It's something that's greatly overlooked in our society. We all have heroes in our lives, whether it be family members or athletes or musicians or authors, as in the case of this show. But for black boys and girls, most of the people that are considered heroes in their life don't look like them. And for the movie The Black Panther to have such a foothold, not only in mainstream America, but around the world, and to be able to show these children that they can have the same dreams as any other child in this world, it mattered. And it mattered because growing up for so many generations in this country, black men and women didn't have superheroes to look up to. And we've actually lost two major ones this year, not only Chadwick Boseman, but Kobe Bryant. And that's why people take these deaths so hard, because we feel like we know these people. We feel like they're the best of us. They give us something to admire. They give us something to aspire to. And in a country that has shown for its entire history that black boys and girls don't have much to aspire to or look up to, the Black Panther gave them that. It gave them hope. It gave them a chance to realize that they literally could be anything that they want, including a superhero. And for so many other reasons, other than that, Chadwick Boseman will be missed. And for not only myself, but many people I know, 2020 can't get over soon enough. Right after this, we'll have the songs of the week and the Baldwin quote of the week. A reminder that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com and please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from and please leave a five-star rating. The first song of the week both songs will be a tribute to Chadwick Boseman. The first song is All the Stars by Kendrick Lamar and SZA from the Black Panther soundtrack released in 2018. One of Boseman's other famous roles was playing singer, dancer, entertainer extraordinaire James Brown. And the second song is Living in America by James Brown from the Rocky soundtrack. Rocky Four soundtrack 
released in 1985. The Baldwin quote of the week comes, it's more than a quote, it's a passage, and it comes from the book A Rap on Race with Margaret Mead, released in 1971. In it, Baldwin says this, I remember once a few years ago, in the British Museum, a black Jamaican was washing the floors or something and asked me where I was from, and I said I was born in New York. He said, yes, but where are you from? I did not know what he meant. Where did you come from before that, he explained. I said my mother was born in Maryland. Where was your father born, he asked. My father was born in New Orleans. He said, yes, but where are you from? Then I began to get it, very dimly, because now I was lost. And he said, where are you from in Africa? I said, well, I don't know. And he was furious with me. He said and walked away, you mean you did not care enough to find out? Now how in the world am I going to explain to him that there is virtually no way for me to have found out where I came from in Africa? So it is kind of a tug of war. The black American is looked down on by other dark people as being an object objectively used. They envy him on the one hand, but on the other hand, they also would like to look down on him as having struck a despicable bargain. Once again, a reminder, representation matters for every single person. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. That's all for this week. Once again, my thanks to Ed Pavlik. I'll see you all next week. Take care of yourself and each other. Peace. Mm-hmm.